0: Uh, I'm reading an excellent... Here's uh, a book... Actually, I recommend this too. But there's a a whole lot of these called uh, A Very Short Introduction. And they're published by the Oxford University Press. And they are about everything. Game theory, you know, Kant, Hume. This is quantum theory. And the author of this little, very short introduction... On quantum theory is John Polkinghorne, who is an Anglican priest and a world-renowned particle physicist. So he has written about quantum theory here. But this isn't the one I'm recommending today. The one I'm recommending, which I, I only have on my Kindle. You can get these on your Kindle if you want. Who would have dreamed uh, called Jesus by Richard Balcom. And it is an excellent, very short introduction into a way of understanding Jesus and his ministry in the the context, the historical context uh, in which uh, Jesus lived. So I really highly recommend that. this book, and the other one I wanted to mention I'm reading called "The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Disagree." Uh, on religion and politics <laughs> by Jonathan Haight. And he is a non-believer, but he writes about the psychology of how people uh, uh, understand issues of moral morality and right or wrong. Here's a gross example of what he talks about, and then he talks to people about the story and asks them to comment on it. Uh, A family looked out onto the street one day and they saw a dog that had been run over by a car and was dead. So they picked up the dog and went into the house and cut it up and ate it. Is this a moral lapse? No. Or is it merely something that goes against our customs and what we understand to be normative behavior. Is it culturally conditioned, right? Okay. So those are the kinds of questions that he talks about. And uh, then he gets to how it is uh, he has a scale. I talked about this in the sermon before. He has a scale of things uh, that people use and so on. And how liberals understand this and how people who are traditional I won't just say conservative, but maybe more traditional. Anyway, you'll be hearing more about that. I'm doing this because I'm sort of woodshedding. The, uh, Ernest just said to me that the readings today are problematic, and that's all, often true in the green Sundays. But I'm going to see whether or not I can strain any, anything out of this business. So I'm going to preach about the reading from Second Samuel David dancing in a linen ephod in front of the ark. Oh, my goodness, me. Paul talking about how we're seeking within the church of God the unity that we are called to and what is it that we could say binds us together. How good people disagree. The Episcopal Church is filled with this and the General Convention just Concluded. So there's a question of how do we seek the unity to which we're called in the midst of disagreement, diversity, and uh, different understandings of what is central. And finally, the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. And uh, how do we make sense out of that? And what I'm going to do with that is to actually obliquely connect it to the importance and the power of the Eucharist. So we, you'll say to me, are you nuts? But we're going to see whether or not it's, it works. So, Second Samuel, David is now in the ascendant. Saul is not. I can't remember. Is this text, is it after Saul's death? Saul's dead. the king. David is now becoming the king. And so he is, I, I should say another subject is... Uh, what is the significance of political symbols in the culture? Because we have that going on now in our own culture as well. So David decides that he's going to move the ark, which is this uh, box on, on, you know, like a, you can carry it this way. And in in the... uh, Torah, the specifications for what wood is to be used, how it's to be designed, all of that is very clear in the text. So uh, we have an ark, and we have the Torah in it. We have and various other things I think they put in there. At one point, the Philistines capture the ark, and it uh, gets filled with rats. That's what I think, and it gives the plague to the Philistines, So the Philistines try to uh, ward this off by making gold mice and putting them in the ark. So they're thinking if they do that, it will, you know, do this. Anyway, David has the ark and he's going now to the city of David and he's going to put it in a tent. This is a precursor to the building of the temple. So there's a great joyous celebration in front of the whole of Israel, the community. Certainly, I imagine the leadership, and there's dancing and singing and cymbals and all this kind of stuff going on, and they're carrying the ark. And David's wife, Michael, is Saul's daughter. So she's watching this, and she grows to dislike him deeply because of his behavior, you know, in some ways dancing on the grave of Saul and um, behaving in a way that uh, is, you know, under new management. That's what we're talking about in this case, right? So it's an important thing both about political leadership, how David exercises it, but also how we're beginning to see a figure develop In 2 Samuel, who was one of the leaders of what the consciousness of the people, even at the time of Jesus, thought would be what you would want uh, if you had the halcyon days come back, the great days. The great days of David and Solomon. That's what they looked forward to when they thought about it. And in this reading, David exercises two functions. He exercises the kingly function. And he exercises the priestly function because he then distributes food to the people and as a way of unifying and also getting uh, him in their good graces, so to speak. So it's uh, something that could even be suggested by how Christians began to see the importance of food and meal Uh, in their own sacred and spiritual life. I don't think that's a stretch. Now Michael is going to hold this resentment, and they will have no children. And then who does David see and meet? Bathsheba. Who's that woman down there taking a bath? Send for her. Right? And so he will do this and then send her husband, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, into the heat of the battle so that he is killed. And God tells King David, we're going to probably read about this, Bathsheba has a baby, And God says to King David, that baby isn't going to live. And the baby dies. So we're beginning to see the disintegration of circumstance. And depending on your point of view, you could say, why are such terrible things visited on people who are supposed to be great? And how are we to believe in any way in their greatness if they turn out to have feet of clay? And I think that's true for everybody. We have to think about that in some way. So that just sort of plants this for us, uh, maybe in terms of thinking and meditating about what it might mean. In Ephesians today, we have... Paul talking about, uh, first of all, what's in the reading is an early liturgical hymn. So biblical scholars will look at that and say what is being said in there, some of this is something that was said in the, lit- in the liturgy in some places. So it's, it's about this. We have two groups mainly in the church emerging now. Paul's mission to the Gentiles... And those Christians that are Jews. And we're beginning to have the Gentile Christians become more numerous than the Jewish Christians. Paul is in some way in the middle because he's a, he was raised as a pious Jew and he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, by the way, is, is a group that believes that you should always be in a state of ritual purity. So that you would observe very meticulously those things before you ate. You would be very meticulous with regard to who you ate with. And you would be on your guard to make sure that you didn't uh, become impure. Because they thought it would be a good idea to be in the state of purity that you need to be in in order to go into the temple. The temple precincts. Right? Right? So just hold that thought because when Jesus was in the temple precincts, he had to have been in a state of purity in order to get in there and he wasn't in the court of the Gentiles. Anyway, Paul is trying to say, what is it that unites us? We have Jewish Christians, some of whom believe that you need to, to uh, observe the law, at least the minimum. Males need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. And you need to keep the dietary laws. And so a Gentile who becomes a Christian needs to understand that this is what they have to do. And Paul's view is they don't have to do that. What is it that unites us? Well, the first principle that unites us is being in Christ. If you accept Jesus, then you're in. There's nothing you have to do and yet at the same time, we have to understand that we're bound together in some, what we would call now sacramental terms, and the thing that unites us is baptism. So if you're a Jewish Christian and you're a Gentile Christian, you are united by this sacramental activity, which is continued on week by week through the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. That's how, that's how it works in the system. Remember what I said in... I can't remember the other word, but in Greek, Gentile is ethne. That's the word, ethne. We get ethnic from it, right? But the translation also can be those people. Those people. Right? Those people. I told you what someone at the sermon discussion said about 15 years ago in the discussion. It said, well, I grew up in Michigan and my parents would say things like, well, you know the ludlows they eat garlic. (laughs) That resonated with a whole bunch of internal boing, 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 right? Just like Jonathan Haidt says about why good people disagree, it means, ooh, they're either too out there or exotic for our tastes. And garlic, ooh, that, that's just a sign of other things, I'm sure, that are wrong with these people. Right? Because you get everybody going, oh, oh, well, yeah, like that. You don't even need to go into detail, do you? Because it's bang, 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 bang. Here. So Paul knows that, and he says, to we have to understand what unites us and what, uh, what divides us. And that we were all one people. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. It isn't to go, therefore, into the world baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and know that I am with you always even unto the end of the ages, which is the end of Matthew's gospel. That is important, but it's not the mission. The mission is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. So we're doing it in Christ. We're practicing the ministry of reconciliation in the world. You might be interested to know that there was a resolution that was passed. I'm very grateful, obviously. And it was somewhat prescient that urged uh, those states that still fly the Confederate battle flag to take it down. This is before it happened in South Carolina. And when the resolution was being debated in the House of Deputies, the entire Mississippi deputation got up and spoke in favor of the resolution. So sometimes when we get worried and nervous about the fact that there's no progress, maybe there is some at least in the hearts and minds of people who seek to be faithful and to, to do that in some ways. And that has also some resonance with how we understand the power of political signs and symbols, doesn't it? Some of you may know this, but the Confederate battle flag was not flown all over the South until, 18, until 1961. It's not the flag. It isn't the Confederate flag anyway. It's a different flag the Confederate flag. This is the Confederate battle flag. Robert E. Lee, when he surrendered at Appomattox, he said later, take that flag, roll it up, and put it in your attic. It's over. It's a sign of treason. So when the Civil Rights Movement got rolling in the 1960s, that flag all of a sudden appeared. Right, And it was because there were people down there who said, not on my tintype are you going to have integration. And this is a sign of defiance. So maybe now we'll be seeking what unites us in a way that is important. And certainly those people who saw that flag on a daily basis, who were the victims of that outlook, uh, didn't appreciate it. And they're happier. You know? They're happier. And that's a good thing. So the focus is on what does unite us. What unites us instead of divides us. And Paul believes that we're all united through our baptism. And we are one in Christ. You know? There's some people that can't let things go. And we'll just have to uh, handle that as it comes along. So... Uh, In the Revised Common Lectionary, this gospel is in the RCL, and it wasn't in the former Episcopal Lectionary. It was a different piece to the Mark Scott. So we're reading today the story of the beheading of John the Baptist, a little bit about John the Baptist. King Herod Antipas uh, was intrigued by John the Baptist. He liked to listen to him. Thought maybe that he was on to something. John the Baptist was an in-your-face person about how he thought they ought to go back to what was what was basic in terms of how they understood themselves as a people, and the abuses of the leadership that he thought were very clear. You know, I say this every Advent. Clint Fowler, director of St. Michael and All Angels in Tucson, where I first began my ministry, used to say every uh, Advent, we had a chapel dedicated to St. John the Baptist in the church, and he'd point to the statue of John the Baptist and say, try singing jingle bells to that guy. (laughs) So John the Baptist is there, and he made... Herod's wife, these Herods are repeated over and over again. I think the two brothers had the same name. And the the one that that was the brother of the present king was also called Philip. And Herodias was married to Philip. I don't know what happened to Philip. I think he died. and, And Herod, his brother, married Herodias. And John the Baptist said, you can't do this wrong you know and I'm saying it to you right you, you can't you can't do it so Herodias listen to this and maybe because he was the king he just said oh I guess not but you know but his wife Herodias didn't forget it's like Michael so Herodias' daughter uh, Sometimes she's called Salome, I think, but she's actually uh, also a Herodias. And uh, she is brought in to dance now. Here is why history or the way things are done in the ancient Near East is important. And also in Greece. What happened at this, this meal was that people ate men. The men ate And then after they ate, there was entertainment in the Greek, and this particular portion of the meal is called a symposium. (laughs) We're going to have a symposium. We're going to drink a little wine, we're going to have a little poetry, and we're going to have a lewd and lascivious dance by a, a physically attractive young woman. That's how we're going to operate. So these guys are all in there for the symposium. That's, it's a Greek word. We, the Greeks did it all the time. And we're going to have this. So uh, in vino veritas, as they say, and Herod Antipas looks at Herodias' daughter and shall we say is, ta- is quite taken with her dancing. And he says to her in, at, the, at the symposium, Tell me, I'll give you anything, including half my kingdom. Tell me what you want. So she goes to her mother and says, Well, you said to me, your, I don't know what to ask. For. And she said, You asked me for the head of John the Baptist. So she goes back in and said, I want the head of John the Baptist parent says well I kind of that. Uh, this guy's interesting but okay <laughs> and sends a soldier over to, a Roman soldier in all probability and cut his head off so what in the world does this have to do with the Eucharist <laughs> I think in the time of Jesus what was operating was that the uh, people who were followers of Jesus gathered together for meals. And the last meal, of course, the last supper, was a, had a particular character to it that has persisted in the Christian faith and life. And in some way it supplants uh, what goes on in symposia. It is different. And the reason it's different is that it isn't just for the higher-ups on one level. It's the common meal, the common sacred meal. And I mention this because as we move now in the weeks following, we're going to get to the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to have imagery that has to do with God's abundant answer, just as King David fed all the people. To curry favor for sure, but it certainly gives them the idea of satisfaction and God's uh, looking out for them as an important thing. In 1946, there was a book written by an Anglican monk named Dom Gregory Dix, and it was called The Shape of the Liturgy. And when I was on a scholarship, 20 of us in Rome when I was still in seminary, Uh, I was amazed at the lectures that I heard from liturgical scholars, how often they quoted him in their lectures. Dom Gregory Dix. And there's a passage that I read from time to time from uh, the shape of the liturgy, which is uh, an affirmation of the importance of the Eucharist. So I'm just going to quit with this. And and, uh, I love this passage. It's wonderful. Please uh, forgive the um, language which is somewhat dated, but I'm going to read it. Jesus had told his friends to do this henceforward with the new meaning for the memory of him, and they have done it always since. Was ever another command so obeyed, for century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country and among every race on earth, This action has been done in every conceivable human circumstance, for every conceivable human need, from infancy and before it to extreme old age and after it, from the pinnacles of earthly greatness to the refuges of fugitives in caves and the dens of the earth. People have found no better thing than this to do for kings at their crowning and for criminals going to the scaffold. For armies in triumph, or for a bride and bridegroom in a little country church? For the proclamation of a dogma, or for a good crop of wheat? For the wisdom of the parliament of a mighty nation, or for a sick old woman afraid to die? For a schoolboy sitting an examination, or for Columbus setting out to discover America? For the famine of whole provinces, or for the soul of a dead lover? in thankfulness because my father did not die of pneumonia, for a village headman much tempted to return to fetish because the yams have failed, because the Turk was at the gates of Vienna, for the repentance of Margaret, for the settlement of a strike, for a son for a barren woman, for Captain So-and-So wounded and prisoner of war while the lions roared in the nearby amphitheater, on the beach at Dunkirk, while the hiss of scythes in the thick June grass came faintly through the windows of the church, tremulously by an old monk on the 50th anniversary of his vows, furtively by an exiled bishop who had hewn timber all day in a prison camp near Murmansk, gorgeously for the canonization of St. Joan of Arc, one could fill many pages with the reasons why people have done this and not tell a hundredth part of them. And best of all, week by week and month by month, on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully, unfadingly across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done this just to make the plebs sancta day, the holy common people of God. Amen. Amen.